This is the Territory Story Podcast with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello there and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. I'd like to introduce you now to my co-host, Professor Elizabeth Spencer. Liz Spencer, otherwise now known as the Professor. Hello, Prof. Welcome. Hi, Peter. Great to great to be with you. And how does it how feel I, to have your new nickname? I love it. I love it. I couldn't. I can never get the students to call me that. So it's excellent that you do. So that's actually a really good question because I um I had to take one of my kids to a sporting game uh, tonight, and I met one of the parents, and I was talking to one of the parents, and then my son and his son came up at the end. And I introduced my son to him. And when I was a child, you would have said, hello, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so when you're introduced to someone. But the kids don't seem to do that these days. I imagine the greeting in a university would have once been quite formal. But what do they go with these days? Is it just Liz or Miss or how does it work? Just this simple, you know, your highness and genuflect, really. It's, 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 <laughs> okay. it's, you take after the administrator fine. then, do you? <laughs> that's, that's, that's fine. You know, that's that's enough for me. I don't, I'm, I'm, don't ask for much. I'm not high maintenance yet. No, no, not yeah. at all. So what have you been up to since we last chatted? Well, I, I, I've been thinking about the, the subject I'm teaching this semester and getting, we're, we're talking about moral panics. And um, and I've been thinking about alcohol as a as a moral panic in the Northern Territory. But then I'm also personally panicked because um, my daughter is going overseas, um, like in a couple of weeks, and she's riding. She's just getting her license to ride motorcycles, and she wants to ride uh-huh. motorcycles around Southeast Asia, which I think is a terrible idea. Well, you so have I'm, given her Cyprian's contact details. I have. I have. <laughs> <laughs> he's got he's got a story about a rather high yeah. cliff in China that. Uh, won the battle between him and the motorbike i know i know uh, we looked at his map the other day yeah so so um but other than that everything's good if if it's any sort of consolation which no doubt it won't be but if it is the the thing that i found while traveling through lots and lots of southeast asia while we look at the driving as atrocious the upside is that it's never moving very fast so you know, any sort of accident is usually just a little fender bender and everybody moves on. Yeah, well, I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Anyway, we'll see. She has no fear, which is not okay. good. Okay, um, fair enough. I'd like to touch on the subject of moral panics, though. Please mm. explain, if you wouldn't mind. And we will well, get to our guest, I promise. <laughs> a moral panic is, um, I think, the definition is when um, the, the, uh, the people in power um, mm. create a sort of a false panic about something that we can develop a moral outrage around to, mm. and it diverts attention from something else. So, um, a, a, so we, something that we're not doing. So we make a big panic about, for example, um, maybe some kind of drug use or some particular type of crime or a classic example is motorcycle gangs. And, you know, they are the biggest problem in the world. And so it's all about what we're doing about this one big piece, you know, one, one piece to sort of, um, divert attention away from. So with the alcohol thing, um, you know, it's sort of, are we just focusing on alcohol and making a big deal about alcohol when really there are so many other things that need to be addressed mm-hmm. as well? So you, mm-hmm. are you alluding to 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> where, do, where do we go with this? Yeah. You know, what's been happening in the Northern Territory of late? Maybe a little panic? bit. Maybe, maybe a little bit, yeah. Wow, so so there's so very real huge you know very real huge issues but if we yep. can just if we can just narrow it down to one one tiny little piece that then we can be seen to be having a really strong response to that's easy to deal with well relatively it's not easy to deal with that's unfair to say but hmm. so you're telling me that you can solve all the issues in an hour and a half lecture at CDU <laughs> always always okay. it, well, what right. would, we wouldn't know. be doing our jobs otherwise would we <laughs> okay yeah. Well, we've got to touch on that more at some point, but we better leave it for this episode because we do have a special guest that we need to get on. And um, I'm really looking forward to having a chat, as I'm sure you are too, Liz. Mm. And, uh, well, I don't need to introduce you because you already know our guest, but let's introduce her to the episode, and that is Carol Fayer. And welcome, Carol, to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Hi, Carol. Welcome. Hi, Liz. Good to so see Carol, you. So Carol, the, gen, the general uh, rule of thumb with the Territory Story podcast is that uh, the very first question we ask you is, what's your territory story? So what that really means is, tell us your background, you know, where did you grow up? And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get further from there. But where are you from originally? Uh, well, I was born in Holland in Steveningen in a home for unmarried mothers. My mother was an au pair in London brought up Catholic, got pregnant and uh, wasn't, a, you know, that era wasn't great to be a single mum. So we moved into a home of unmarried mothers and one day, and my mother couldn't live there, but she worked there. And one day a, a disgruntled ex-husband came up with an axe and chopped the wife up and the nuns all had nervous breakdowns and the place was closed down. So my mother and I were sort of... Um, you know, we had to find rooms to live and we sort of lived everywhere till she met my father, who's Indonesian, Portuguese, uh, Dutch. And um, then we sort of lived all around Holland and different places till we moved to Brussels and uh, I was put into a French boarding school and uh, learnt to speak French very quickly covered in bruises because, you know, that language war has been going on forever. <laughs> and uh, then my parents decided to move to Australia and we lived in those, you know, nuts and bolts camps, you know, the ref well, not, you know, newest immigrant camps. And um, we sort of moved into Melbourne and then moved around. And I said, by the time I was 13, we shifted 13 times and um, then when I was 14, I'd actually left home at 13, but moved back at home when I was 14 and we moved back to Holland and I did three years in college in Holland, went to an all-male school, which I never thought was strange till many years later. <laughs> and when I was 17, I saved up my money because I couldn't stand living in Europe because it was so controlled. I moved to Australia and didn't really know anyone, had $300, but then got married at 17, which was, <laughs> look, it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. It was probably what I needed, a bit of stability. But um, Carol, yeah. you lived a fuller life before you were 17 yeah. than most of us have by the time we're in our 50s or 60s. Yeah, wow. Wow. 
Yeah, but I guess that's why I've lived in Darwin now for over 36, seven years. Um, I quite like the stability and I, I, don't, I hate moving. I don't mind travelling, but I don't like moving. And I guess I lived in Broome for uh, three years and loved Broome. I loved the isolation. I loved looking out at the mangroves and realising you're just nothing and none of your problems matter. Get on with life. And then we moved and I was just drawn back to the top. I, I couldn't, I didn't like the rest of Australia. And then moved to Darwin and Darwin is so great that it's the least conservative place in Australia. It's also made up with so many people that have lived everywhere and everybody's doing something. It's not about having stuff. It's about doing stuff. And there's always so many opportunities. It's still a frontier town in a lot of ways. It is. Carol, obviously you were very young when you started in the unwed mother's quarters, home. How, yes. How, long were you, how old were you until you moved from there? Oh, I was one, so I don't even okay. remember it really. So, But I do remember moving all over the place because I think when you're young and you move all over, you have a better memory, which is not always good because my parents weren't exactly stable people. My mother had bipolar and my father was a pedophile. So it wasn't a really stable upbringing. But because we moved all so much, I think it distracted right. the sort of dysfunction because yeah, you yeah. had to get on with fitting in and everything. So, you know, everything in life has a positive and negative and it's just about building on the positives. And, well, you know. Carol, one of the things about you that, and I don't know you well, but having had a quick chat with you now and then, is that you gave your children such a really stable upbringing, it seems, or have I got that wrong? Maybe because you were compensating and you were trying to give them something you hadn't had? Well, I think parenting is one of the hardest things. And I, I, I don't think anyone ever thinks they get it right. There's always guilt and everything else. But my kids turned out quite boring, really, which is a <laughs> wonderful thing. You know, my daughter was like ducks of the school and she's a geologist now. My son's in IT. They're really well adjusted. Um, they never had to go through the trials of, you know, having to leave home. Mm. and Everything was pretty stable for them, which is really nice. So, um, yes, I'm... I'm I'm happy that just all turned out um, in the right way. It's amazing in many ways, really, when you think about it. Um, Carol, how old was mum when she had you? Oh, she was 21. Okay. Yeah. Right. And and you're probably, um, well, I'd say the last of that generation where that, you know, you, you heard of that scenario in – you know, the 60s, but certainly since then, you know, since probably the 80s onwards, there's no such thing as unwed mothers. You know, it's just not an expression we even use. No, and I, I think when I was uh, – so, so I went to uni and did my art, Bachelor of Art Visual Arts much later in life, and I've always been an artist, mainly because I'm really dyslexic and art is a great way of making sense of things. But I remember um, we were doing a few tutorials and that, and we were talking about the bathhouses, you know, in the old days. I'm thinking, shit, 
that's where I went. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's my, that was my upbringing because you know? we couldn't afford a house at that time with a with a bathroom. So yes, it's um it's a it's a difference, but you know people are doing it tougher than that right now. So it's all that's relevant. True. We're a pretty lucky place. And what language did you grow up speaking? Well, I spoke Dutch, of course, first, and and because my father's Indonesian, so there was a fair bit of Indonesian, and then French because I was put into a French boarding school. And then when we came to Australia, I went to Murrumbina Primary School, and I remember my parents just dropped me off at school. There was no mollycolling like we do now, and (laughs) and that was just like drop you off. I couldn't speak a word of English. There was no, now listen, she doesn't speak English. You'll be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all fine, you know. And I guess, uh, you know, Europeans are a bit like, and Dutch especially, they're so good at languages that you just expect to get on with it and learn, you so then I did learn English and um, obviously and uh, went through schooling and everything. But then I had to go back to Holland and went through my last three years of college in Dutch, which was actually fantastic because of my dyslexia was a real handicap through my Australian years because they did not know what that was. So they just treated you really dumb which I knew I wasn't. But then when I went to college, and obviously I got expelled in my first year in high school, I was naughty, I uh, failed everything. But then when we went to Holland, the school I went to was just really free and fantastic. And they didn't pick up my dyslexia because they just figured, oh, she's learning a new language the Dutch is not too bad. And they didn't even look at that, which gave me so much confidence. And and I ended up, you know, getting distinctions when I went to uni from someone who got, you know, failed high school. Wow. So that was wow. good. What, what think... about the, the French? Um, sorry, Peter. No, no, move forward. What, what about no the one. French, the French boarding school that sounds very sort of you know upper upper sort of hoity-toity and and the rest of it doesn't quite fit with the with the rest how did that work no well my dad used to think he was pretty hoity-toity although we didn't really (laughs) have much money and he used to borrow from everyone but um yeah I don't well I think my mother was pregnant at that time in in um, Brussels where we lived so it was just easy for me to go to the boarding school and I mean, I was home most of the time, but I was at that school and, you know, we ate there and, you know, and you just learnt really quickly to, I mean, it's a lot like, uh, you know, have a lot in common with defence people um, because kids, because you you have to move around. So you become very quick at assessing the situation and working everyone out. So it's it's pretty good like that. So, Yeah. And I would have also thought, um, while you may not have been doing it at the various schools, but because you'd already learnt three languages at you know at a relatively young age, they say that um, language brings other skills. So you know it it can improve, for example, maths. I don't know how, but this is just what I'm told. Never for it. No, never for artists or creative people. Maths is there. It's really yeah. weird. And I think it has more to do with how maths is taught. Yep. Um, because I actually like puzzle solving and I like, you know, I love philosophy. I, I actually like uh, 
you know, all things like that, but I'm just hopeless like most artists are in maths. So, yeah, and I think it is more to do with um, how it's taught than uh, Yeah, I'd actually agree with that wholeheartedly and it's very much on topic because my eldest kids were doing their maths homework before we were recording this and my son <laughs> is very good at it and my daughter is good at it but she's not confident and she was struggling with some answers to some of the um, problems that she needed to solve. And as soon as her brother explained how you work it out, she got 100%. Exactly. And I think my son had a little bit of struggle when he was at high school. So, you know, as a single mum, it was quite expensive, but I um, I paid for tutoring because all, and I also got him some um, computer games because he is a gamer. Um, mm. on maths things and that just changed it so he just passed it all you know and he got that confidence because I think once you you know once you get labeled it bad at something and lose your confidence it's really hard to get that traction back so you just need other areas to give you that confidence and if you do it a little bit different that's fine you know it didn't work like that for English with being dyslexic, though. And I am dyslexic. I always tell people in all my languages. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it transfers to everything. Don't discriminate. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So then you made a living out of art. How did you, when did you start sort of, because you had some other, you ran a post office or a, what was oh, it? A yeah, and I managed some hardware stores and I I managed Thorny and my um, businesses. I do have the Dutch work ethic. So every job I get, I always got made manager, um, sure. which was, you know, uh, and I, I had that long period of um, having lots of staff and, and all that, which is hard work. It's like having lots of kids. Mm. It's like, oh, my God. So um, and then. I had the news agency and then I – and I'd always practised my art. I sold my first piece to a gallery when I was 13 and all that's all I wanted to do. But, you know, you can't survive as an artist in Australia and be financially independent. Um, so I did different things. But then I did my um, – when my babies were born, I did – while I was working as well, I did my – arts degree, which took me seven years, and then um, split up with my ex and um, decided to open up an art gallery, which I've had now for 16 years. And that's been um, uh, certainly not a moneymaker, but I've probably sold more paintings in Darwin than anyone. Not that I'm <laughs> the best artist, but it's just that I'm very diverse and, you, you know, you have to sell your own stuff to survive, unless you're doing Indigenous art where there's a lot more money. But uh, I'm the only non-Indigenous gallery in Darwin. And um, mm. and I do exhibit other people's stuff as well, but it is mainly my work. So, yeah, and that's been fantastic because it's, you know, it's, it's a dream job. You know, I'm so lucky that it's all fallen into place. But... You know, it didn't fall into place straight away and a lot of artists go, oh, you know, you've got the best. But, you know, I worked for, you know, I paid my house off when I turned 30, which was a big thing, but only because I had three jobs and just didn't do anything and just saved and saved and saved. So you have to sacrifice a little bit to to get to those 
places. It doesn't ever happen just like that. I get- there's, a, there's a term we use in real estate, Carol. The harder you work, the luckier you get. Absolutely, that's right. There's no luck in it. It's hard work. And for for many years, I was earning bugger all with the gallery. And you have to invest in yourself, you know. It takes time to build your name up and everything like that. And then, then of course, and I've always been really interested in politics as well um, from a very young age. Um, And so 2016, I also ran as an independent which was really hard. Well, it cost me my savings um, and I door knocked for a year and a half and I had booths everywhere and, you know, I did, I did, I did really well. And I, I don't, I don't, it wasn't a failure not to get in, but it's, um, it led to so many more things. And I, and, and I'm a good lobbyist for things and I, and I like to think of myself as an authentic pragmatist um, in my <laughs> politics. And um, so, you know, and, and I, I also believe there's no such thing as truth in life. And I think that's an important thing to have in political life because, you know, you only have your beliefs with the information you have at the time. So you always got to be open to different discussions and be diplomatic, and um, but you have an opinion. But it's it's there's nothing more exciting when someone changes your opinion because you've learned something. So mm. it's a, it's a good thing. I can't believe you were the only you're the only non-indigenous art gallery in Darwin. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's been plenty that have started, but none none really lasts that long. Unfortunately, a lot of artists aren't great business people, and I, I did have lots of years in business to be able to, uh, you know, n- know how to run a business on a shoestring. Hmm. So, I think yeah. that's the skill, isn't it? Um, because particularly with art galleries, usually it starts with some sort of a premises which involves rent. And uh, with that comes electricity costs and water bills and insurance and um, yeah, so it, it, it's yeah, good. Good business ideas are often the starting point, but actually turning it into a good business is a, um, a whole different kettle of fish. Oh, absolutely. There's you know you have to be so many different um, people to be able to run it and to be sensible about it. And and look, I, when I started, I I had you know I didn't. I also studied commercial interior design, so like my shop fit and everything like that. I did it. I I, I didn't um, overcapitalize, and that's often the mistake of businesses too. They overcapitalize, don't understand the marketplace. They've got all their idealistic views of what's going to happen, and that's not always the case. Or it can be the case, but it often takes a long time. So mm. you can't overcapitalize, and uh, so yeah, it's a lot of sensible stuff. But you know, all those years I did of working, managing other places, I tried to learn as much as possible the whole business because I knew I'd do something myself, and I'd rather learn it all on their money and their time. So, and well, that really helped me. And and you've diversified too. You sell, you do, you make your own jewelry, and you sell it. Yeah. And yes. and you're probably the one of the only art gallery in Darwin that is also a, a funeral home. 
uh, not just Darwin, the ABC did a story <laughs> out there, went nationwide, Australia-wide, the only funeral home in an art gallery, and maybe the world. I don't know how it happened, it just happened. Is it an active funeral home? Yes, yes. So I do burials and cremations with or without services. I cut out pacemakers, I dress the people, I've got a hearse, I've got all the on the whole thing. But I, I started it because my dad died. He actually died putting a Christmas tree up, which my brother and I always laugh every Christmas. Sounds a bit callous, but it was quite funny. And um and when he died, got to explore this further. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was a bit macabre, but he wasn't the nicest person. And um, and then I started looking into cardboard coffins because I, I, I look, I really don't like multinationals, and I think we spend way too much on weddings and funerals. So I thought there's no op- other option than the standard of what you've been told, what you have to do. So I started looking into it, and lo and behold, a few months later, I'm in Brisbane in a mortuary, getting mortuary lessons. Not that I do open caskets or mortuary, but I know how to do it. Mm. And um, and and there I was running a funeral home, and it's been one of the most probably rewarding jobs ever. I mean, politics is not rewarding. I, I think politics is is something I do because I feel I should be giving back because I've been lucky and, you know, and I, and I like to bring just some justice to our policy making and all that. Uh, art is just what I do, it's breathing. But the funeral homes, you know, dealing with grieving families is probably the most rewarding thing. When people are mm. grieving, everyone no matter how rich or poor or if they've been in jail, everyone's on the same level and they're mm. really nice. Mm. Do you ever do any upsells? I actually downsell. So <laughs> when people come in, my, I always say, I'm sure you weren't expecting to be to organise a funeral in my couch here in the gallery, but yeah. it calms everyone down. You know, most funeral homes have horrible music and you see yeah. all the coffins and, and it just makes people more vulnerable and that's why the mm. multinationals they hate what people like I do because mm. they then upsell and my motto is I always downsell and think you know you can do whatever you like but you need to know your options and yeah. spending huge amounts of money on a funeral isn't going to reduce your grieving and in fact probably about 90 percent maybe more of people when they die don't want the family to spend ridiculous amounts of money and you can do beautiful stuff that's personal and that doesn't cost anything it just takes imagination Mm. and talking to the family and working out what they really want not what they think they have to do yeah. Peter, so when I great. thought you, when you said upsell, I thought you were yeah. saying, did did you think maybe you'd like some other relatives to die at the same time? Oh, and we no, could, no. we could was, you know, give you a group break. And it's funny sometimes <laughs> I don't explain my jokes, but I was, thinking, <laughs> I was actually thinking, uh, you know, you're sitting in the art gallery, come funeral home, and I'm thinking because you know often in these situations, families talk about what the deceased person is going to be wearing when they're buried, et cetera. So I was thinking, what a great opportunity for some earrings or, you know, one of your 
one of your products just to <laughs> well it's funny you say that because sometimes I have families and you know they come into a bit of money <laughs> and I and I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with that because I think oh no no I'm not trying to sell you anything else but they always say oh I really like that I might come back you know because I'm yeah. cashed up now and uh, but no look that's not you know and I'm, I'm actually more uncomfortable but so when I say you know when I finish with people I say I hope not to see you again but I said, you're always welcome yeah. to come in the gallery. But of course. Not for so where's that based, Carol? Sorry? Where's that based? Um, in Darwin, in the city. Right. In, so, the, in the gallery, in, this, in the art yeah, warehouse. In the yeah, gallery. Just... So my gallery is on Daly Street in the yep. city. And um, I've just got a couch area in the gallery and we just do we do all the paperwork. We work out how we're going to do the service and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I've been to a couple of funeral homes in Darwin, okay? So I used to, <laughs> I used to work in a sector that involved me selling to some of those funeral homes and I was always innately aware that the guests of honour were close by. But if you're doing this in the city, the guests of honour are probably located elsewhere. Oh yeah, because um, most the well for every funeral home really, most of the time we pick up the deceased person from the mortuary in the hospital, or all, all deaths in the territory, which is a really good system, um, better than most states. When someone dies out of hospital or, or a nursing home or the hospice, um, the coroner gets involved. And then there's a contractor that picks up the deceased and takes them to the mortuary. The family then has time to ring around and find out, get quotes and find out who's best suited to do their funeral. Whereas down south, a lot of the time, you've got these sort of like ambulance chaser funeral homes ready for their hearse. They snabble the body and you're sort of locked in with them, you know. And, and also they charge a nightly rate for um, storage, it's a horrible word. I call it a hotel rate, but it's yeah, like a hotel rate. Yeah. Carol, how did how do they snavel the body? I mean, what what is that? I'm... Well, they'll they'll <laughs> just you know, <laughs> snavel. Obviously, there's police and stuff there, but they'll you know they'll come in and they'll take the the, the body. <laughs> and you're sort of locked in with that funeral home, which is, you know, it's much nicer. It's it's much better that people have the time then. And to, you know, I always encourage people to ring around, have a talk, find out what's best to you um, for your needs. But when you're sort of locked in, even some nursing homes lock themselves in with some funeral homes. So mm-hmm. the family has no say and it's too hard to say, oh, I don't want to use your quote and then yeah. move the body somewhere else. It's quite it's quite horrible. Um, and we have a, this problem actually with in, Indigenous people at the moment. So I'm actually doing a talk to the NLC because um, often a funeral home, a, a body will be taken to a funeral home because they think they're going to do that. And it could take a month to organise who's paying for it, what they're going to do. And that's like $60 a night ticking over just for for uh, accommodation, so-called. Refrigeration. And, uh, and, and they don't really get, a lot of the time they don't get, that's not made aware to them, and that's mm. really bad. So, you know, I think 
People just need to, like Groot Island, for example, spend an average of 20000 per funeral, you know, and I just think the people need to know their options. I would rather see them spending more money on, you know, better clinics in the community and things like that. And it's not na- it's not culturally right, yeah, traditional anyway. It's just mm-hmm. what the industry have said. You've got to have eight hundred dollars worth of flowers. You've got to have a ten thousand dollar coffin. And it's you know there's so many more affordable options that are still really beautiful, and you can still do you know um, cultural ceremonies and everything with it. So yeah, it's just about re-educating people, I guess. Carol, I've heard mulching is a new thing in in California, and can can we mulch here yet? No, there's all sorts of there's water dissolving oh, water. Yes. There's all I've sorts heard about of the water things. one before. Yeah, yeah, but look, our population's so small; it's just not, and we don't have a space problem. And we um, don't make. Do we make good mulch? Do you think? Yeah, we've Will got we enough mulch. From, we make, oh, yeah, yeah, cyclones and it creates lots of mulch. <laughs> no, it's look, it's not, um, it's not economically viable at this stage, you know. It's, uh, but I only do recycle. I only do cardboard coffins anyway, so I try and keep it as you know environmentally friendly. And also, it doesn't make them look like cheapskates because they can just say, mm. "Oh, we're being environmentally friendly." Mm. <laughs> And, and in many ways, it's probably better anyway because of, you know, um, the inevitable process that goes through with all the, I mean, I'm sure it's not all metal these days, but with all the metal handles and, you know, um, the brass exterior and things like that that they had back in the day, that would probably last a million years before it breaks down. Well, even worse, like the territory is really good for all the funeral homes. None of us do really viewings. Um because we're the least conservative place in, in Darwin, people are pretty, you know, um, down to earth and realise it's all. But if you still go around to the bigger cities um, in Australia, mm. burials, most people still go through mortuary thing. And that is so, first of all, it's so invasive to the deceased. It's really expensive. And worst of all, it's so environmentally bad. Like, the land around cemeteries in cities is the most toxic land. It's really, really, really bad. Um, because so, be, what's, what, where's the toxin coming from? Well, because when a person dies, I don't want to go into too much. I might make people feel a bit ill when I – and I do talk about mortuary and I have to be careful who I say it to. But you really purge the body of all fluids and you massage. You have a big syringe and you suck it all out. You massage all the fluids out. And then you pump it full of chemicals, all different types of chemicals to bring pigment back in the skin. Then you do all sorts of other things. So, you know, the body is full of chemicals. And mm. uh, but, but we don't have to do that. That's not something anybody has to do. No, but they do it because they're talked into it. And, and people just think, oh, that's what we've got to do, especially down south, you know. Because and- they're having viewings. Yeah, yeah, really. And and really, I, I just think, you know, I speak to so many. I told my kids, when I go, I don't want anyone to view me because it's like inviting all your friends into your bedroom in the morning. 
when you've woken up with your worst hangover times 100. <laughs> you know, you don't look great. And no matter how much makeup and stuff, you don't look like yourself. And that can be really traumatic. It leaves a really traumatic image for people. And really, the memories we have should be all those memories that we've had with that person and mm. not just that final look. Because, I mean, kids and babies look good, but, you know, once you get past 40, 50, you know, you don't look that great when you've passed. It's not, it's not you know. I've never understood the fascination with it. I, I just, I've never understood it. I don't know if people want to view a body for proof or, you know, because they're still in disbelief. But other than that, I, I just can't understand why anybody would want to do it. Well, the other thing is as well, we, we now keep people alive so much longer. So the family are able to see them right up to that anyway. So, yeah. And we also have so 10 million photos and things. It's not as if, you know, you need that proof because, you know, you're able, it's much better to go and see them in the hospital than see them when they're past. It's, mm. yeah, it's not, it's not nice. So did you tell us what drove you to this in the first place? Like how did you get into this industry? I don't know. I just like my dad died and I don't know. Sometimes, you know, um, like my favourite book when I was younger was The Alchemist and and I just thought that was really wonderful of how um, things can pass you by. you just got to take up, well, it's knowing which things to take up and which not. Never be scared of failure. Um, because everything you do in life you learn. And, in fact, mistakes and failures are often your most learning process. Uh, same goes with art. You know, if you don't have works that you can't resolve, you're not pushing yourself and you're not, you know. So it's the same with life. And I, I always tell my kids that never be scared of failure as long as you don't keep making the same mistakes. But, um, mm. you know, you learn so much for it and and they can lead to incredible things. So, yeah, you just do it. And I just feel so blessed that, you know, my la- later part of life, all these things have fallen in place, you know, and I every morning I wake up and just feel really blessed. Will your kids follow you into the business? No. God, my son won't even go near the hearse. He thinks it stinks, and it <laughs> does. <laughs> so, and but they might. My daughter's a real straighty lady, and she couldn't cope with the idea. She still doesn't really like me talking about it. Um, and I look at anyway. It's a business that I don't think. Um, you can do unless you've got life experience because you have to relate to people and, you know, I, I think um, being too young is not, is not a it, – it, you have li- you need life experience to be able to relate to people. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not really a young person's um, thing. And, um, yeah. That's sort of good to hear. I like the idea that there are a few things that's, that still are left for just old people, the province of old older people, not old, older people that, that aren't better. That everything's better for young people these days. So I'm glad we, there's something left for those I of us I think politics also, I think politics is, I mean, it's great to have young people coming up in politics and always encourage that. Uh, and it's wonderful. And, I, you know, I've mentored quite a lot of young people to be involved in youth roundtables and things like that. And I love seeing kids with passion and that. But 
really uh, to represent your electorate and that, you know, you need to be able to understand what it's like to pay rates and a mortgage and the trials and tribulations of having children and all those and work things, you know. Otherwise, you can't really relate or have that real empathy to the wider community. So it's all right being young and that, but I think age is a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. (laughs) Well, one of the things, though, they were just talking this morning about – the uh, minister for children that they needed to, we needed to have actually a minister for children, not just a commissioner at the national level. And I, I, you know, wonder about the rights of children and young people. And I think it's super important. Um, But at the same time, what, what you're sort of saying is there, the obligations, the responsibilities maybe can't be carried by the young yet. So we have an, you know, we, we have an obligation to them as a society, but they really can't carry the burden of of actually governance and and the responsibilities yes that um, no. so there's rights and responsibilities and and our children should have the rights but not yet the full responsibilities yeah. and it's, I, I think we hmm. should listen to them and we and they should be involved but obviously you know it takes a lifetime to learn the bigger picture and uh, and often when you're young like you know it's I was really involved in all sorts of things when I was young and I was really idealistic and passionate and, you know, you realise that there's always a bigger picture and it's not so black and white. And so it's good. We should encourage uh, children and younger people to get involved, but maturity does teach us a lot of more grounding things. Has your art changed? Has your art changed over as you've matured? Um, Oh, look, you always paint. Um, I always do um, series of works. Like when I first went through menopause, that was really horrible. And I did a show called Happiness is Overrated. It was probably the most <laughs> darkest show I ever did. And, um, but, but, and I had a, a friend who had a son who suicide. So it was all this horrible, it was just, you know, everyone has these periods in their lives. So it was quite a dark show. But, um, no, it, yeah, you're painting always. You should always, I always say paint what you feel, not what you see. And so, but I, oh, I, I also have a synesthesia. So I, that sort of um, informs my art of how I paint. So I always like to have that. When you're looking at a work, you should be able to smell it. You should be able to feel it. You, you know, that's that more tactile. I know it's a boring subject, but <laughs> no, it's not boring. But I, I am going to need you to explain to me what a, synesth- a synesthesia is. Well, it's a really funny thing because I've had it all my life, and I never spoke about it to anyone because I just thought oh, it sounds so wishy-washy and nonsense. And one day I saw a documentary on telly, and this woman was telling, talking about a synesthesia, and this doctor was saying, "Yes, it's quite normal." And I just cried and cried, and I thought, it's a real thing. So it usually comes from trauma in childhood and that. So when things are happening to you, for me, my tongue would go thick. And it's not a taste. It's really hard to um, explain. My tongue goes thick, and you almost transcend whatever's happening to you on the ground. You're no longer part of your body. Mm. So 
my body, my whole body would fill the whole room. That would be happening to me there, but I wasn't part of it. So, and it always starts with this sensation in my mouth, and you get sort of quite high from it as well. So it's actually a really nice feeling, and. And it wasn't till I went to uni that once we were doing critiques of paintings, when we tipped the painting upside down, the first thing that changed before my uh, visual took my brain was my mouth. And so, and when I'm stressed or feeling really good, it's usually a sensation in my mouth first. So when I'm painting something, I try and replicate the feeling in my mouth as opposed to what I see. So it's, mm. it's really hard to explain. But but synesthesia comes in lots of forms. And and a lot of people, like you have the savants, that, that they do maths equations and they see landscapes. And so there's so much written about um, it's just another sense. You know, we have five senses. Synesthesia is just another form of um, another sense really. Mm. And it just doesn't feel kooky. Like I don't see words as in letters. I see shapes. When I have an emotional response, it's a shape. Uh, when I remember people's names, it's always a shape but not the letters. So mm. it's just it, that's just a synesthesia. And I, I just thought, doesn't everyone have that? So, yeah. so this condition you were born with, it didn't arise out of childhood trauma or anything like that? Yes, it did. It did. Yes, yes, yes. It definitely comes from childhood trauma. How do you know? Oh, because it's been written about so much. It's 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 an actual real thing. In fact, there's a there was a uh, person, an Oxford scholar, who wrote a whole book on synesthesia, and she actually interviewed me. And she um, and I read a lot of the stuff, and it's just a very research thing that it is, um, yeah. But not all synesthesia and savants come from trauma, but some things do. So your brain just adapts. We're so we're so resilient as humans as adapting to really bad things, you know. You, well, you see, it's, it's funny, like, war-torn countries and real poverty don't really have child suicide yet. Mm. It's more richer mm. countries and that. So it's amazing how you can become resilient and find ways how to deal with it when you have to. It's so funny you say that. I, I've heard of this thing before um, where people who are dealing with trauma, as you just explained, uh, are almost almost disassociating their self from it as it's occurring. But just that thing you mentioned then, uh, I, I heard this years ago, after the Bali bombings, they had a spate of people suffering from anxiety and panic-type disorders. It had never been seen on the island of Bali before, but they associated it in the end with the shame that a lot of the Balinese felt towards what had happened and the fact that it reflected so poorly on uh, you know, their part of the world and, and them, although they had nothing to do with it, most of them. Yeah, well, that's right, yeah, I, of course. And and like so many people that go through PS that do oh, terrible with acronyms, but you know what I mean, post-stress, um, is like that. Sort of I always feel lucky in a way that I had that. I was growing up with it as a child, so I learned to find mechanisms to deal with it, which really has helped me through my whole life. 
So like I always say, you know, there's positive and negatives to everything. And I just feel so blessed that I learned those tools really early to be able to cope with stressful situations that we all have to deal with. I mean, just because you go through something in life doesn't mean you're not going to deal with something later on. It's, you know, it's a roller coaster ride and you've got to hang on. And yeah, I feel blessed that I have those tools to be able to. Um, and I think also, I'm, I consider myself really lucky because I never remember bad things. It's, it's, I don't have that capacity of building up bad situations. I always forgive people that have bad, done bad things. Um, I, I don't, and my son's a bit the same, you know, sometimes he, 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 I remember once he was really frustrated and said, it's not fair. I can't stay angry. I want to be angry. And I'm thinking, <laughs> man, what a gift. So lucky. What a lucky fella. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 so yeah, so it's it's I'm lucky I didn't have to train myself to do that. I just had that ability. It's a bit frustrating sometimes because I don't remember if I've had a test for something or you've had some ailment because I just forget every all those bad things and uh, yeah. So it's uh, yes, we're very resilient humans. Absolutely. So what drove you to politics, Carol? I'm really interested in that. You know, where did the, it all start and, you know, what, what were your aspirations when you set off down that path? I think I was always involved in politics and debating when I was in college in Holland. And I, I think it came from, well, I know where it came from. It came from the injustice of what my father did to me and um, and the fact that it wasn't like the sexual act that was really bad, but it was the the um, betrayal of trust and that he didn't really care. Well, he was a narcissistic megalomaniac and he didn't really care about anyone else, uh, but he still thought he could control through that. And I, I was just incensed by the injustice of how dare you tell me off or something when you've done this to me all my life, you know. Mm-hmm. So that injustice always carried. and. And then I, I sort of was always interested in politics on different levels as well. I really like, I'm not really into sport, but I like the chess game of, of, of how that plays out, the psychological. And I, always, I really love the moral side of forming policies. I think that's really interesting. So I, I still listen in, to par, into Parliament. I always watch it. I read the bills. I... Um, you know, I'm really involved in that because it's, and and I think, and I'm, you know, I'm often on the radio discussing those sort of things, and I, I don't have any alliance to any party, and I think that's the problem with our country. We have too many people that align themselves with a political party, where whereas we should be aligning ourselves with good policies, and uh, and debating them. Um, as the policy without any prejudice to where it's coming from. And that's, I always find a problem. So, you know, I, I, I do have a lot of, I run a few social media pages and I'm, um, it's a tricky area to navigate because a lot of Australians are not very good at debates. And if you don't agree with them, they get <laughs> really nasty and personal. And it's like, so, you know, I have to sort of hand them a shovel, some people a shovel. <laughs> I just keep letting them dig. And then when they mm-hmm. finish, you know, they usually end up by saying whatever. And then I just take the shovel back. And eventually those people sort of learn they're not going to 
they're not going to they're not going to come out looking very good. And I always do it politely, and you have to, you know. I think you should always have empathy to everyone's views because we all come to things from different perspectives. But it doesn't mean you have to agree, and doesn't mean you can't debate that in a respectful manner. But not all people get that, you know, and they get quite defensive as well, uh, mm. and it gets quite. Uh, and it's uh, I must say, it's mainly men often that get really, and sometimes I think I should use a male uh, name, you know, then they won't be as nasty because it's, it's even worse then. Like the uh, male version of the Karen? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's really <laughs> quite, um, it's 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 quite horrible. But I just think, you know, and I want my, I love the Territory and I want to give back and I want to make the Territory, you know, every problem can be fixed. It's just a matter of, and you know, and we have too many people that just whinge and whine and I always say to them, you know, it's, it's always easy to stand at the bottom of the cliff, cliff and complain about stuff, uh, including the opposition that often do, does that too or just be adversarial. But what we need is people to come up to the top of the cliff and work out how we're going to sort out these problems. So, yeah, Carol, if if in your, if in your political life you could have you could have you know take if you were in office and you could have achieved one thing, what would that one thing have been? What do you think the most important thing a politician could possibly achieve in the Northern Territory in you know in the past five or you know between now and and three years from now, what what, what would it be? Oh, that's a really hard one because there's so many areas. But I think one of the biggest problems Australia has, and including the Territory, is our lack of investment into mental health. Because if you look at domestic violence, you look at the people in jail, you look at those kids that are in detention centres throughout Australia, um, just about 70, 80% really have got serious mental health issues through trauma, through um, just natural conditions. And I think I would we can intervene earlier and have better intervention in that, you know. And I've studied, you know, like crime and dysfunction throughout the world and policies and even places like Holland. I think, you know, Australia has, well, the territory, our incarceration rates are nine, were, when I was running, 938 per 100,000. Holland has 48 per 100,000. Our revolving door rate is 80%. You know, jail is not and detention is not a deterrent at all. You know, jails and detention centres are meant to be for rehabilitation, but we've just made it, we've normalised it and and we, we make worse outcomes by picking that lazy route. They they say in the states they, they say in the states that prisons are just, you know, um masters courses in criminality. That's what and you, you hear that, I mean, uh, I've heard that directly from so many young people that have been in jail that, you know, that, or, or detention. You know, it's, I, I, I've always cried when I go past Don Dale when you think of those kids and when you read their backgrounds, they've been let down by their families, they've been let down by the community and then we punish them a little bit further by putting them in a place 
to network with all the other dysfunctional and and traumatized kids there's no real pathway for them you know and it's really frustrating and then people say oh the parents you know and I remind them these kids now were, are their parents they were them you know it's no point going over all that ground saying where are the parents and these kids that are in trouble now will go on if you've not being taught empathy, which is one of the biggest things you do to your children when you're a parent, right from wrong means nothing. You know, it doesn't, it has no meaning at all. Empathy is what makes us stop and think of what we're doing. And if you've been brought up with no empathy, you know, and, and that's where the problems lie. We we need to go much further back and they can't be fixed, right? You know, you don't teach empathy. And uh, I think empathy is something you should be learning as an adult to the day you die. <laughs> well, one of the things too that it's I don't know what your view on this is, but having only been in the territory a short time, it feels like there's such a disconnect. But to to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you both have more experience. There's a disconnect between us and the rest of Australia. You know that that the problems here aren't the same somehow, or they're you know, and, and they aren't, and yet why? And, and look, I remind people too, the Territory has a population of like Wollongong. We're bigger than Victoria and New South Wales put together. We have eight ministers and people just tend to blame politicians for everything, which is just crap. You know, it, it's, it's up to us as a community to all try and understand what the problem is. I don't know how many times I give people like the Justice Reinvestment Report to read, which is a really good understanding of how people get to that situation. Um, so, so, I, so, I, yeah, so I can see why you'd want to do something more cheerful, like be a funeral director. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way better than politics. <laughs> it is, it is. And you don't get abused, you know, you, and it's an honour and you become part of those families' lives, you know. It's it's mm. really, it is really, whereas politics. But I think politics is something you need to do. And I, I, I do it for my children as well. And I hope that, you know, when they're older, I say to my son, you're going to politics. He goes, no way, because, you know, they've had to <laughs> hand out how to vote for me on different yeah. elections. and But I think they will because... Um, that sense of not just whining. And I used to say that at uni, you know, cynicism is just a form of laziness coming up. You shouldn't really just be cynical and whinging unless you've got a better option on something. Carol, I'm, I'm interested to drill down a bit on um, that thought process because, you know, we talked at the start about um, uh, Liz's, what's it called again, Liz? Man Mor manic moral panic. panic. Moral panic, <laughs> manic panic, um, about moral panic. And, I mean, yeah, there's just so much to discuss here. The Northern Territory really is at a disconnect with the rest of the country. And, you know, we saw with the Four Corners episode years ago that you know, the rest of the country went into turmoil over what they'd seen. Now, we had John Elfrink on this podcast um, discussing that exact thing. And he says it was a complete beat up and that it was, you know, they they chose certain footage to run that made things look a lot worse than they were at that time. But the the reality is that right now we we have a, a situation and nobody seems to have an idea at this stage on how to fix it. 
The territory's just got $250 million handed to them by the federal government, uh, which, according to Chris Walsh from the NT Independent, is essentially uh, a gift, so to speak, as in there's no real um, milestones attached to how that's spent or where it's spent. But I'm interested to get your thoughts because you've been there for a long time and, and you know, I don't know you personally but I'm familiar with your pages and things that you've said and I'm always interested in debate and I completely agree with you. There's nothing better than changing your opinion or stance on something because someone explains something to you in better detail. What I will tell you is that we also had the Palmerston Mayor on this podcast several times and she said something to us that I've repeated dozens of times since, and I'm still at a loss to understand how we've got to this point, but she said that it's safer for these children in Palmerston at least to be wandering the streets 24 hours a day than it is for them to go home. And if that's the case, then the system is broken. And if you don't want to blame the parents, then how do we fix this? Because as soon as you start saying, oh, well, the state can intervene, then you get stolen generation thrown back at you. So I just, I'm at a loss to see what the solution is, but we need one quick. Definitely. I actually ran against John Elfrink in 2016. And it was, and look, uh, that four corners thing, and I mean, uh, because his personality sort of, he set himself up to be, you know, make himself look bad. But that problem with Don Dale is not unique to the Territory. You know, we've seen in WA. It's a massive problem throughout Australia with how we deal with traumatised youth and um, dysfunctional youth. So it's not just a problem in the Territory. But we do have uniquer problems uh, than other places because we've got people coming from communities that, their way of life is just completely different and they're mm. having, I mean, it's hard enough with your children adjusting to new things like phones and gaming. Well, they've got to adjust to all that and a lot of the parents don't even speak, you know, fluent English and their cultural things. It's, it's just a massive big problem of that. But, look, I've had so many meetings with the heads of police and that where, businesses where we've all sat around a round table as discussion should be respectfully and we hear the you know and the police I mean one story the police was telling me he just made me cry you know and he was tearing up you know we we see those horrible things where where you know the police want to take these kids home and they go to their home and they think I can't leave a kid here you know so they're driving around half the night trying to find a safe place for them and um but i do think i do think we've put better things in place and i think it's quite good it's come finally come to a head like this sometimes you don't clean your house up till it's so bad and uh, and then you have a really great spring clean i think i'm hoping because i'm an optimist that we're at that precipice now that we go whoa and we have i think a lot better federal government now that has uh, is more willing to listen, understands the problems that we have with intervention because one of the biggest problems we had, in fact, most of our problems are caused by federal intervention, starting way back from sit-down money to all, mm. all sorts of things. The intervention, 
you know, there were so many communities that had great, pro- or not all of them, but many had great programs and were doing good things. Intervention cut out everything. And then there were new programs put in, half-heartedly funded, um, and once they've taken off, then they couldn't get funding again. So people just got absolutely fed up and just despondent about the whole thing. So why bother? You're just not going to listen to us. You're just going to, we're going to set all this up and you're going to just wipe it out. And I think that's a really important thing that the federal government and the territory government now are understanding. And I like the idea that they do have a person who is going to be um, coordinating federal funding and NT funding because there's a lot of overlap and that's where we just see waste and things like that. So hopefully accountability will be in that area as well. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think, um, I, I, I think, and look, the things aren't going to be fixed with money alone, definitely not. I mean, that's the worst thing you can do. And we've created a sort of um, this money thing with a lot of the communities where they won't do anything anymore unless you give them money for anything, which Mm -hmm. is we've set that up. So we don't want to continue down that path. Um, So, yeah, there's so much to do. But, you know, getting together, and I was quite vocal on that meeting in Alice Springs um, a a few weeks ago because I hate those type of, um, they're like lynch mob meetings you know sure everyone's angry everyone has a right to be angry we all are we all don't feel safe it's a terrible situation we're in at the moment but getting angry and um when you have those meetings you're always going to get some radicals from all sides and all it turns into is a screaming match and that's exactly what happened 20 minutes in that cut the meeting down If you're going to do something like that, you should have a community meeting where you bring in all the stakeholders from, you know, community people, but you bring in the sensible ones, not ones that are just going Mm. to rah-rah for their own, you know. You have to be so careful with those meetings. Can I tell you both a story? It just reminded me of something. Of all things, I was scrolling through TikTok, which I'm not a a big TikTok (laughs) fan, viewer or watcher, whatever you call it, but I was scrolling through and there was an Indigenous man in Alice Springs and this thing went for at least 60 seconds, maybe even longer, and this guy called himself an elder. Now, when I say elder, I don't know, you know, how high up the chain he was, but this guy spoke sense and it was unbelievable. And he was talking about white fella and black fella working together. He was talking about getting the young ones back out onto country because they don't do that anymore and they're stuck in these towns and cities, etc. and, you know, explaining to them language, explaining to them um, the songs and the, um, uh, you know, the rituals and things like that. And I thought, well, that was off the back of, I believe there's a, a lady that's organising an Indigenous women only meeting out near Alice Springs as well. And it just made me think, well, these sorts of people are starting to take control here, they might be able to turn this around because it doesn't look to me like the government at this stage or or their agencies are having much luck. 
No, no, and it's not this government. It's Look, I've been saying these things for over 30 years, and mm. I said 30 years ago when people complained, we're only scratching the surface because we're not, we're not putting things in place to fix it. It's just snowballing. So to blame this government or any government now Yep. It's just wrong. You know, you, 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 you're distracting and you're looking for scapegoats, which is never useful at all. But I tell you, um, the member for, oh, I don't know what that electric's called now, Gove, Mark he went whenever Parliament sits, his English isn't that great, but he writes the most amazing reports afterwards. Mm. And I always read them because he has really good things to contribute and he's not aligned to any party but what he did say which was really important when kids are in um you know go have to go to Dondale or, or you know go before the courts they're in remand from anything up to a year and in that period of remand there's no rehabilitation there's no programs they can't do anything and all they're doing is making network you know, mm. with with stuff. So what he was suggesting that if they could have their kids back, mm. um, well, in, while they're on remand, so the elders out there and the and the group of people would take them out to country, and do stuff with them. And um, he said it a lot more elegantly than I did, but I, it was really good. And there's some really good people that have come mm. out. Um, I, I saw Catherine Little, you know, she was on Q&A the other night and she was brilliant. She was really, really good. Uh, Dr. John Lawrence um, has been on the radio. Really good, calm, sensible things. And they're not really that hard. It's about communicating together. And I always think it's like if you have a problem in your family or your workplace, you don't go in as a boss or the parents say, this is shit. This is not going to happen anymore. We're going to do this, this, and this, and they're just going to go, yeah, whatever. And uh, but when you sit down together with your staff and go, how are we going to resolve this? You know, you might already have an idea, but when you involve them in all that, because they all know it's it's not a good outcome. But when you get them all involved and thinking about it, when you do come up with something, they're part of that solution. And and I think that's what we that's what we lacked with intervention, you know. So we need to bring it back to that. And I think I think the federal government and I think a lot of people are having a say towards that, which is really good. So maybe I'm just mm. always over optimistic, but I, I see that is a real uh, paradigm shift in the way we're doing things. So it's yeah. I love your sense of possibility, Carol, and, and your optimism. It is, it is, um, I agree. It is lovely. But I can't help but think, aren't there sometimes, you know, things that are just wrong, you know, and relationships, like sometimes two people in a relationship are just wrong for each other, you know, and it's, and you, and you're just not going to make it work and it's better to part company. And, and I just wonder about this indigenous, this ancient culture. I mean, cause there are lots of different things going on in the Northern territory, but, but one of the big ones is that we have this ancient um, culture and, and ancient cultures in the communities. And, and then we overlay that with um, a colonial, land grab um imposing capitalism and and a and a democratic 
you know, system, which is power based because it's voting. And so, you know, it's, it's all about power and it's about ownership and it's about you. Oh, those two don't mix. Do they, how do you make those two mix? How do you, or, or dovetail? Yeah, I think you, you, you do though. As humans, we have to evolve. doesn't mean you have to lose your culture, your language and everything like that, but you do have to adapt. Otherwise you're going to fall behind. And Everyone has to do that. Everyone has to adapt to a certain thing. You can still be yourself, but you do have to adapt with changing times because change happens. I mean, uh, and for communities, there's massive change there and they do have to adapt to that change. And, and, I, and I think coming back, Peter, what you said earlier was a really important thing, you know, as humans, we often tend to go from one extreme to the other. And with like the stolen generation was one extreme. And now we've gone to the other extreme where we don't, you know, we don't do that. And my daughter had, you know, I've experienced this with kids as well, um, where kids have been put to foster family, foster homes. And my daughter had a girl in a class and she died on the grass. Um, with just blood poisoning from a sore while, while her foster mum was at the casino and covered in ants and the, her brothers and sisters were on the grass with her, you know, and she died that way. It was the most horrific, wow. you know, and there's lots of stories like that. And then I've met really good foster parents. There's also ones that just do it for the money as well. It's a, it's, it's, it's a really complex we just have to do what's right for the child and you're not always going to get that balance right, but we, we need to stop going. And look, and, and really the stolen generation was really, really horrible, but there were also aspects of that that were necessary um, because a lot of the half-cart kids weren't treated very well and well, not in all circumstances were they given the best op- other option. But, you know, we can learn from that. But we shouldn't jump from what – there's always a balance to getting it right. So, yeah. Can, can I ask you a really personal and, – and you don't have to answer it, but what would you have said if – what would you think if you had been taken from your parents because the government in that place and time thought that your parents weren't fit? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I, uh, and I, I do mull over this because – when I was 12, I told my mother what my father had been doing to me since I was like two, and she just had a nervous breakdown, and we left. And she was never really that strong a person, and we left. And at the age of 12, I became the head of the family because she said to me, what do you want to do? And I knew he would never do it again but do you want to go back to him? And I had a younger brother who, you know, and I knew my mother wasn't very strong. So I decided then, well, we might as well go back because I won't be at home for much longer and uh, and I know she's not going to cope. And also it is really, really scary for a child to have your stability and your home, no matter how traumatic it is, 
taken away from you. It's a really, really scary thing. And it's often, and that's why I don't always agree that, like, I could have put my dad in jail, but that would have been more traumatic, that whole process, than me just, you know, working through it, moving on and, and that. But that a whole upheaval so it's a really that's a really complex and that relates to family you can often create more trauma by for those kids by you know you have to do it carefully and mm. it's it's all individual really it's, and it's did you make a conscious decision about that carol when you were young or is that something that you've sort of worked your way through as an older person that- oh no no i think when i i, I remember at 13 and it was at that stage because there were other family members that did things to me and I just, you know, and at that stage, you know, you're like suicidal, which I was for a little while. And I thought, stuff this. I'm not going to let these people control my life. Mm. Um, it's I'm going to work my way through this and I know I can because it's not my issue, it's their issue. And I knew then at 13 I was an adult, you know, and, wow. uh, and that's why I'm so glad that my kids never had to, they just went through normal daggy childhood, teenage yeah. stuff, which was wonderful, yeah. you know. Didn't want them to have to grow up so quickly. And my brother too, you know, he had, he dealt not with sexual abuse, but my father was really horrible to him as well. And he had to deal with my mother who's bipolar and, you know, manic mm. crazy and uh, so he was doing his phd while he was still at home and really really difficult for him as well so and his friends always say you know how did you two end up sane you know <laughs> so, so this is this is really heavy yeah. stuff but um i yeah. have i have to ask <laughs> who gets to be a victim does anyone want to be is it does anyone get to be a victim should anyone be a victim is anyone a victim well, you have that choice, really. And I often I love speaking to young people that have gone through abuse and things because I always say to them, and it might sound controversial, you've been given this gift, right, and it's taking you to a really high level because um, you've had to deal with so much. And you can do two things. You can use that to continue a higher journey because you've had to go through that or you can be a victim and when you often become a victim when you look at your perpetrators they are victims so and it's usually the way it is you know people that have you know domestic violence is often you know they've watched their parents their dad bash their mum and it just sort of normalizes it so that victim sort of thing can it's you know, it's a choice people make, and I and I think that's what we need to educate people that have gone through kids through trauma. That um, you know, you can do two things: you can become the victim, and you usually have a crappy life because you end up often following that that road of destruction, or you so, can use it. So you might be a victim for a short period of time, but you oh, hopefully you don't inhabit that for a long period. Of, is that what you think? Oh, absolutely. And it's a journey you have to go through. You don't just have an epiphany and it's all gone. There's crap you've got to deal with, you know, uh, and and you need help with that, you know, and you've really got to work on it. And it takes a long time, you know. There's, There's lots of issues from all sorts of trauma that you have to work through. And, you know, crikey, most people have it till the day they die, you know. There's always things in it. It, sometimes it could be something really small that people hang on to 
Uh, but it's just a way of navigating and, and working through it and uh, through, you know, I like to read a lot and, you know, so, yeah. Amazing. I think um, just listening to you, the fact that you kind of had it all pegged as a 12-year-old says a lot, really. Speaks volumes. It, well, yeah, but it's, it's – it's, well, I'm, I'm very grateful that it did because it certainly helped through my life. So, yeah, I wouldn't change anything in my life. I think I've been really, really lucky. And, you know, rough, rough roads help you become a mm. little bit tougher because life mm. is always going to throw crap at you. It doesn't stop, really. And resilience is an important thing. It's, you know. I, I have a, a friend who just sailed um, from um, Europe across the Atlantic. And he was hoping to get the trade winds just right so that they would, you know, scoot him right over. But he said the trade winds did something really odd when he was doing it. And he had to, he had, he said he had to change the sails like, you know, 15 times and he was kind con- he didn't get any sleep anyway. He said it was more, I, so we all were like, how was it? How was it crossing the Atlantic? And he said, you know, it was on his own in this boat. And he said, it was, it was a lot more work and less fun than I expected. And I said, oh my God, that's my life. And it sort of sounds like you might be able to relate. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, and, and I, I remember someone, one of the artists years ago was telling me in the gallery, he said, his mum told him, um, you know, you're unhappy in that and it, it's a, your problem is your expectations for everything are way too high. <laughs> I thought, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, you know. Don't have too high expectations on stuff and, uh, you know, just go go with it, you know. Find mechanisms. Look, I, I actually wrote a book as well when I was married in secret um, called <laughs> Harnessing Happiness. I never got a publish. I think there was a publishing house in New York that that. <laughs> Um, was going to publish it, but I didn't really want to go down that path. It was just a cathartic thing. But I always, you know, with everything in life, there's a positive and a negative, and you can't get rid of the negatives, but you can navigate a way to make them less. So that's the journey of life of just, and then holding on to those positives to make that other, and, and and not expecting they're never to be negatives because they're always going to be negatives. And I think if you're expecting it, you just deal with it. You know, you have mechanisms how to deal with stressful times. You know, you go for a run, you read a book, you escape, you drink Well, you've run a business, Carol. <laughs> you've run a business. So automatically you you have got a certain way of thinking and looking at things that many others just don't have. And the fact is that if you own a business, then you're the managing director and you're the toilet cleaner and yeah. you're everything in between. And, yes. you know, if it comes to paying the rent, then you've got to sell that piece of art at whatever price you need to sell it to pay the rent or, you know, cover the electricity or whatever it might be. Whereas there's not – not everyone has that. They just don't have it built into their – DNA to be able to go and start a business. So they they have a different dealing mechanism. But I look at business owners, having been one, that um, it sort of sets you up very nicely through life as well. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and we are all managers of our own lives. 
And I think uh, I think I remember it's same age thirteen having I made up my deathbed rule to life, and I thought I don't want to be in my deathbed in five years or fifty years time saying I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd mm. done that. Um, you're better off just doing it, and 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 you know things just because you know some people are really nasty that I didn't get elected. No, you're just a failed politician. I think, oh, what a sad attitude that is, you know. Mm. I learned so much from it and I'm a good lobbyist. In fact, I probably would achieve just as much as I do in the community with lobbying than if I was a backbencher, you know. So, mm. and, and, I, and I'm not obliged to the rules of a party or, or political donors. So I can speak freely, uh, respectfully always. And mm. uh, so... I, yeah, you can still achieve it. And, and you know, I don't have to run for po- – people have no idea how hard it is to be a politician. Every four years you've got to run a campaign, <laughs> which is shit. It's just really <laughs> hard work, door knocking. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it's, and then when you are a politician, your pay's not that great. You know, all your <laughs> heads of your departments that are on like two or three times more money than you with better benefits – they don't have to run every four years. Um, they don't live in the fishbowl. If you're a minister, everything a department does comes back to you, your family. Mm. You know, it's 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 not. We we really treat politicians. And look, all right, there are some crappy politicians, but <laughs> but I think the biggest problem we have is crappy voters. You know, not the politicians. People just don't do their homework. They fall Mm. for slow, empty slogans. It's so easy to research a person these days. You know, I always say to people, just Google them. Have a look at their past. Don't just look at their slogan for this campaign. So many people that I've ran, you know, with at at elections, you never see them again. They pop up just before campaigning and they're all rah, rah, rah. Never see them again. You know they're not involved in in communities. So you get those ones that just want a job. You've got the megalomaniacs and 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 you know big egos. Mind you, you do need a bit of an ego to do that job because it's so difficult. It's really mm. hard. And you know if you eight ministers we have and all the portfolios, the stuff they have to read and get their head through is enormous. And then you've still got to appeal to your electorate and deal with, you know, the broken pavement, although that's a council thing, but, you know, all those <laughs> sort of things and everyone's do they, gripes. Do they read all that stuff? I always wonder whether they really read all that stuff. Well, some do. Uh, not all, obviously, don't. But you do need to be, uh, no, a lot of them don't. In fact, when I was running, I read standing orders, right? No, no, Carol, who doesn't read them? <laughs> I read standing orders and Jerry Wood then, because, and then they changed the standing orders. There were parts of that. And I said, oh, shit, I've just gotten through my head through all of that. And he looked at me really weird and he said, half the people, half the members in parliament have never read it. So I thought, oh, okay. But um, and that's a problem too. And they don't know what bills are on the table. They don't. Uh, they don't see what's. Um, but then that's the people who have elected them. You know, they've never bothered to ask them real proper questions. Or you know, that that is true. Um, there's a there's a belief 
of late that governments are elected based on the fact that the current government has the northern suburbs covered because that's where all the uh, the government workers live. Uh, I'd love because I, you know, just listening to you, I think you obviously are pretty fair-minded, um, and you're, you're happy to listen to both sides of the argument. Love, love you to give us a scorecard on the current government, what you think they've done well, and um, otherwise. Well, you know, I don't have any alliance to, uh, but I think this this government is so much better than the previous NTG. Um, They've got some really genuine people in there. I've worked with them. I've worked with the CLP. The CLP, sadly, is still the old dinosaurs are in there. Um, There are many issues that they, I personally, been involved with where they did not care about the community's opinion, um, but were were more interested in backing their political donor and things like some development issues and things like that. Look, every government gets things wrong and no government gets it gets it everything right. I, I think I think they're doing okay. I think um, there's always areas that are room for improvement, but it's a difficult job. And I, I think we we sometimes our terms of government like federals it's too short, you know, yeah. to get things changed. And it's so expensive to change government. If people knew what happens when you change your, your government, all the public service, you know, the, the current, the new government has to pee on all the posts to make it theirs. It's all <laughs> that changing, disruption, and it it costs so much time and money. And then, so that's about a year to get that all set back in place. And then a year before the next election, they're spending all their time campaigning. It's this mm. it's just I think we really need to relook at our political system because I don't think it's healthy, you know, and then we just go to the blame game all the time of 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 and, and this whole barracking for your team. I'm always debating with people that are barracking for their team. So I think the policies, I think they've got pretty uh, – they're doing all right. I think they're doing all right. And, and and I wish we did have a better opposition because government is always better with a, with a good opposition. Yeah. But it doesn't exist, you know. And, and unfortunately, most of the time they're just adversarial for the sake of it, yeah. which just really annoys me because we're not – and there's certain things in our community that, that we should have bipartisan approach on. You know, a crime is one we saw with a by-election in Fanny Bay where it was disgusting, you know. They were using that as a political football. In fact, you know, the opposition, we you know, we changed the age from 11 to 12 or 10, 10 mm. of hard to imagine, isn't it, the age of responsibility, from 10 to 12 and and many in the CLP totally disagree with that. And want to bring it back to ten? Now, just think, even twelve was ridiculous. You know, you know when you've got kids. Imagine a ten-year-old being responsible for, you know. So, it, and they're just doing it because they're appeasing the angry mob. What we should be doing is educating the angry mob, and not making them barrack, but making them understand the bigger problem and, and moral, the bigger moral too. panics. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Here we go. Big circle right back to that. 
Yeah, that's right. But in saying that with the Fanny Bay by-election, um, I got the flyer from the CLP candidate and there was five things that they were running on. There was their five little point plan on their DL-sized flyer and one of them was, we're going to reduce the price of petrol in the Northern Territory. Oh, that was and a classic, like, wasn't it? What have you got to do with petrol prices? It was so funny, and there were lots of things. In fact, I'm, a, I'm on a I'm on a committee. We've been fighting in our suburb this big development, like a hundred and two story, um, big block uh, development in a in a Is street that's already struggles in the gardens, the Blake Street. Oh, it's okay. nine yep. years. We've won yep. all the NT cases. We won a Supreme Court case, and. We didn't take the developer to court because they're just doing their bit, but we took the DCA and and the government uh, and the department to task for manifestly failing in their duty to, because mm. they're meant to consider all the submissions where there yep. were hundreds of submissions, lengthy ones. And, and that by-election, that candidate, because they were all wanting our votes. They knew it was close. And so he came and said, oh, yeah, I totally disagree with that. I agree with you. I stand with you. And I said, well, actually, it's funny you say that because when Tracy Haynes ran for the CLP, she said the same thing. But when it came to the crunch, she had to say, oh, no, I have to. we have to support the developer. And I said, so if you're saying this now in your campaign, I want an email from you right, <laughs> stating that you – So, and this went on for about two weeks coming up to the election, and it kept bobbing me off with this, not, oh, don't you trust my word? And I said, no. I said, of course <laughs> not, because we've been burnt before. Just put it on an email so we have it in writing that you're supporting us. The yeah. day before the election – um, and I said, I don't want it just from you. I want it from your party because you are representing your party. So I want yeah. it from your party. I finally get an email and it just said, oh, we support what what he said. Or it was just something. It wasn't an any sort of thing. And I said, mate, that's not what we've been asking you for weeks. We want something mm. from the party. And then on election day, I saw the booth of the CLP, and I know them all, you know, because I've ran. And I and we're, I'm always polite. We always have a, a nice chat, even though we disagree. And um, and I said, gee, that was a bit, you know, that was a bit tricky. You guys saying um, you're going to support us, ninety percent of the residents of this suburb. And yet you're not really wanting. And he just laughed and said, oh, well, you know, we have to just go through the motions. But, yeah, we we discussed it in our um, party meeting and uh, we're supporting the developer. And I thought, well, what a lie that was, you know, and, mm. and that's really bad, you know. And that's when people lose trust in politics, you know. So, um, mm. yeah, the CLP, unfortunately, have got a lot of ground to make up. I hope they do make it up, but it needs, you know, it needs a lot. I think you're right. I think good opposition is important and unfortunately, you know, because of the numbers in the previous parliament and while they're somewhat better this parliament, um, I I think that the alternative to the current government is not presenting a great case. And so... Mm. You know, whether the current government's doing a great job or not, people are going to stick with what they know if if the opposition is not 
uh, a decent alternative. And, and what's the point, if you're disgruntled with things, from jumping out of one frying pan into the next? It's mm. so costly and everything you've started to set up just disintegrates and you're doing it all again. You know, I've got lots of friends in high up in public service and every time there's an election, it takes, you know, yes. a year or mere, more to get things settled again. People don't realise this. We're better off as a community as a whole being more in tune of what the issues are, lobbying mm. respectfully and talking to their their elected members in, in a way that's rational and logical to mm. make the changes instead of just like not understanding because most people that just whinge and whine have no idea what's going on. Mm. And that's I like what you talk about barracking. There's, there is a real, a real sense of that. Um, the... As a former um, independent candidate, I don't know if you've heard the discussion around um, there are some other um, countries that operate under the same political system as us where in the smaller jurisdictions they don't have parties as such. They run on independent parliaments and they yep. get a lot more done. Have you heard Canada. of it? What are your thoughts about it? Well, Canada's one, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's really good. And even like I mean, I am doing an Oxford course. I've been doing it for years. It's a globalization of world politics, just a light subject to do on the side. But it's really yeah, interesting right, on on yeah <laughs> on how different countries set up their political system. And you know, for too long we've just had the two party system basically. And uh, and I know like. Even in the Dutch politics, they do have a lot more sort of independence and, and just a lot more variety of different groups. I think in a small thing, it's fantastic because and people say, oh, yeah, but you're not going to get things done. Nothing. Well, actually, they're all one vote, isn't it? When you're passing a bill and legislation, you're still one vote. I think Jerry Wood did a really good job for years and years. I mean, you don't have to agree with everything he said, but... He looked at the policies. He didn't align mm. himself with a party mm. and he was brave enough to go, no, that doesn't make sense. And he did do his homework on a lot of policy stuff and I think we're missing that um, in our parliament and I would like to see, I think Mark's really good as an independent. He's also, he's willing to listen to all sides. I think more independence is a fantastic thing. And look at the federal government. I mean, we've had some great independence. What's her name? The woman who passed the bill for the um, not the ICAC, but the yeah, the other, you know, anti-corruption thing. You know, there's some really good yeah. independents yep. putting bills for the table that are really sensible. And I'm really liking like David um, Pope Pock uh, from Canberra. Yeah, I think. Yep. I think he is, I've really been impressed. He's not just an uh, environmental idealist. He's actually taking time to really read things, to really talk to, you know, different areas, to get the different views. I've been really impressed and I've spoken to a real lot of conservative people would never to go, oh, and they all <laughs> agree too. Yeah, he's actually... Mm. They're those sort of people we need, intelligent 
uh, ones that are willing to do their homework, um, have empathy to different things and form and have a good moral base as well. Of uh, and, and, and you do need a business base as well. I found in the Territory for a long time we had too many public servants, too many career politicians, no one with any business sense. When you're in business, you can't waste money. You can't have a tap running because you go broke. In government, when you have too many people without a business background, they don't care if we waste money that time because this tap just keeps flowing, you know. Mm. So you do need the business background um, people in there. And it's also like dead wood. I know so many people like in the education department where, you know, they can't sack people. So they just got to shuffle them around to be someone else's problem, whereas the private sector, you just wouldn't, you'd go broke if you had <laughs> to carry these people, you know. Mm. So, and I, I guess we've we've let the unions in certain areas, once again, we've gone from one extreme to the other, have a bit mm. too much say. And I think, if, you know, there's got to be a process where you, um, you've got to decide this person, this job's not for you, you know, and, and mm. this happens. Is not going to. Uh, so we do need more. I wish we had more business background people in the public service that yep. control that tap a bit better. So, Any yeah. chance we'll see you putting your hand up again, Carol? No, no, um, because I, I, I find I'm contributing enough lobbying. I'm not going to chuck in my fantastic funeral business that I get so much reward and enjoyment from. And, I mean, if I was 20 years younger, for sure, and I, I came mm. to it pretty late. Um, if I was younger, I probably would. But I, I've still got core flutes in my mezzanine floor in one of the hmm. things and some A-frames. And my son said to me recently, aren't you um, going to get rid of those? And I said, oh, no. He's going, oh, <laughs> no, Mum, please. It's too hectic when you're running. <laughs> so, it's his, turn. it's his turn, Carol. No, no, no. It'll no. <laughs> be a long time. No, it's a really hardcore. It's, it's, and I always say to people, you know, the ones that whinge the most, I say, and what do you, what do you, con- what do you think? Have you ever considered running? You have big opinions on stuff. Why don't you run? And, and they just shut up, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's that uh, back to cynicism is a simple thing. So, you know. I, I'm very proud of myself that I did run. So mm. because I think it's it's one thing to just talk about stuff. You've also got to try and be part of it. But yeah, I've I, you know I've done my savings twice, which <laughs> is a lot as a single mum. Yeah. Uh, so you know I'm not going to do that again. But I can still play a big part, and I do a lot on social mm. media. I like mm. to speak out of my echo chamber. I mean, the anti-independent page, they don't like me at all. Um, because okay, everyone's entitled to opinions. Yeah, well, that's right. And, look, I don't mind their editorials and that, but they do allow that nastiness on their page where people just bag and, and, right. and, and you know, they're two-sentence lines that are usually nasty. They get on the bandwagon, a witch-hunt type of mentality, which I think is is really ugly. I hate seeing that in our Darwin community because we're one of the least, you know, racist. We're a very tolerant society. We accept 
you know, all different types of people. And I, I hate mm. us being drawn to that nasty side, you know, without listening. It's become a real social media thing, I think. Um, you know, I see it daily in my work and yeah, people feel some sort of comfort at being, you know, complete pricks because they don't know the person they're talking about. They're probably never going to see them. And, you know, half the time, in fact, I think I said this, if it wasn't with you, Liz, it was to someone the other day about that there was an article written recently, which was brilliant. It was about exactly that, all the stuff that goes on social media these days. And the article went on to say that look, there's probably only 5 to 10% of people who actually care at either end of the spectrum and they draw everybody in from the middle because you know, people feel affronted by the, the controversial things that they say and that's how these conversations escalate out of control. Yeah, and I think, like, I run a, quite a big page in Darwin uh, and I, I think if you are running one of these group pages, you have a bit of a, a responsibility to control it. And mm. I just, I I'm often kick people out, especially when we were going through COVID, you know, all the conspiracy people oh, who were really nasty. And, yeah. uh, and, and they, you know, but Carol, they were right. Don't you know that? They were right. <laughs> there was no other option that they were right. Of course they were. So yeah, I think, and I think that's the problem I had with the NT Independent. You know, and I've said this to Chris. You know, no problem with your, but I, I, you do have a responsibility um, to control your social media page because I don't want our, I don't want our town turning into, you know, that sort mm. of witch hunt type of mentality. I mean, the Rolf case was a great example. Before mm. even the colonial inquiry is done. There was hashtag, so many of the CLP people were on the hashtag mm. I stand with Ralph before the case was even, you mm. know, and that's wrong. doesn't matter what your gut feeling is. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be way, flying that flag until you know the bigger picture mm. uh, because that's why we have a judicial system. Oh, sorry, Liz, you shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, that's why that, we're a civilised world. That's why we have law and courts. So so that bigger picture can be, um, I mean, it's not always perfect, but it's the best way we can see the bigger picture and, uh, and not just someone, you know, making judgments who's got some, you know, witch hunt or some being dragged into some hate group, you know. Let's mm. let's leave it to the judges to make decisions before they know what the, know the facts. Well, yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, um, Carol, I'd also be interested uh, to talk to you a little bit about the Darwin CBD. Um, I know that, you know, your office is in the dead centre there, given your type of employment. Do you yeah. like that little bit? Yeah. Um, and I know that the Darwin CBD has been discussed, you know, for years and years and years and how to revive it and the various social problems that, that you know, often get discussed. Um, yeah. You know, I guess let's talk about that a little bit for a while. All right. Well, there's three main factors. Like, And I, I've had businesses in the CBD manage from the uh, late 80s, so long time. And I've seen mm. like the mall when it's boom time where you couldn't get a seat in the mall at lunchtime <laughs> and there were fashion parades and there was, you know, all the workers having lunch and it was just full on. One of the biggest problems we have in the mall is 
and in the CBD is there are only a few property owners. And because of the negative gearing and that, the shops sit empty. They're not going to reduce the rents, right, because they can offset that empty shop with the profits they make and the others. Many, most, and, and actually when I ran, one of my platforms was the land banking and that precise thing. I, I stated you shouldn't be allowed to have an empty shop with a full lease sign. You should be allowing other business around you to do a display in that window. Sure, have it locked, but that it's a, because it's a benefit to your property to make the city look alive. There's nothing more horrible than having a business with an empty shop next to you with a felice. It's like, it's just, a, it's horrible. It's like a cancer that's growing. This is dying. They never spend hardly any money doing anything after a lot of the property owners. And one of the things I also brought in is all the empty land around town, the land banking. I brought in a th- thing and the actual the Labor Party ran with it which was really good, I didn't care, I thought it was great, um, that you can't leave a block like that full of rubbish and, mm. and, and crap, you, sh- you know, because it, it's it's not fair to the businesses around you. It draws the whole city down. I was just talking to the council worker today out the front. He was taking photos of a, a block across the road from the Greek church. Uh, they've got this crappy shea cloth that's all fallen off and it's blowing over the footpaths. There's weeds, there's rubbish, fences falling down. This is on the main street coming into the city, you know, and and no other city would allow that sort of thing to happen. So the Labor Party did bring in a um, a, a levy, I I guess. It shouldn't have been ever put in a, a tax. It should have just been a fee. If you don't fix it up, we will get a landscaper and do the minimum sort of cleanup and you will get the bill. Yeah. Uh, as simple as that. It's not going, the money's not going into some fund to fund something else. It's purely for that. And that was put in, but it's not been followed up, you know. There's a couple, I think Terry Finocchiari, he did a beautiful block um, near the petrol station on Daly Street, empty block. And he just made it's still empty block, but he's fenced it, he's put um he's covered it really nice, he's landscaped it, he's done really well. The other ones, they don't even live in Darwin. They don't care, you know. Mm. So th- they're things that we should be doing. The other problem, now this is a real controversy. When I had the news agents in Stuart Park, we were lobbying and I've been lobbying for 27 years that we don't have like the Vinnies and all the homeless service things in the CBD. We do mm. need services like that. We need, you know, we need safe areas for women and children. We need showers. We need a laundry. We need cooking facilities, but not in the CBD because you only have to go to Stewart Park in the morning you get about 50 or so or sometimes 100 people pull, turn up for breakfast. A third of them sleep all around there because they're going to get breakfast in the morning and or they turn up in taxis to have breakfast and then from that they move into town and often to the bottle shops or humbugging people and it's it just makes the city attractive for them to hang around. Why go back to the, you know, why go back 
to the community, to my overcrowded house and no work and that. Mm. So they'll hang around there. So I think moving moving those facilities, because it's destroying our tourism for sure, because I talk to tourists all the time. And if we don't have a strong tourism, the money we make from that, we're not going to be able to pay for funding. So it's that balance, you know. And it doesn't mean I don't care about those people, but they're damaging the hand that feeds them, so-called. So they're they're problems. But we've done other things like the waterfront's been fantastic and, and of course, one of the best things, and he should be nominated, I think, for next Territorian of the Year, is David Collins with all the street art. So he has transformed our city, and I was actually part of that 15 years ago, um, making uh, legal street art spaces. And um, I got rid of the graffiti police task force because we controlled it ourselves. We had the least clean-up bill of graffiti in Australia. And then David came back to town and he went. He really took it to the next level where he got funding and, you know, just turned it in and we've just won silver, gold and bronze Australia-wide. And with all the problems we have in at the moment on street level, it's great to have a distraction and look up. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, so we have wonderful things. And I think um, the street activation before COVID was really good that the that, um, – the Labor Party brought in was, and they they fund and they were right behind all the street art. So they have done some really good things in that, uh, but the other problems are, are difficult ones, and I wish someone would hurry up and move on them. Mm. So, yeah, we can only hope. Yes, that's right. Carol, it's been a pleasure talking to you and learning your story and your history with the Territory and obviously, yeah, 30 years in, it's home and um, your contribution to it. So I really appreciate you talking to us. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I didn't realise I've been talking that long. I haven't even had a wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that means we did our job properly, Liz. What you did. It was wonderful. Oh. It was a real pleasure. It was a pleasure. I learned so much as I as I did as I do always when I I listen to um, to this podcast. So thanks, Carol, and thanks, Peter. Thank you so much. That was Carol Fayer on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again on the next episode. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.